0: Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me. Yeah, idiot! Welcome everybody to the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. This is episode sixty-eight, and while for the last several weeks I've been doing this podcast with uh, with wonderful conversations with other writers, or in a in a recent episode with my family, I've to I've decided to do this week's episode alone because I have a I have a lot of things that I feel like talking about, specifically, I I feel like talking about writing this week. And the, well, the reason that I've been thinking a lot about writing is because I've, I'm, I'm currently working on my, my next novel. Uh, not, not to, not to be confused with the next novel that I'm publishing, because the The next novel that I'm publishing is book two of The Vampire and the Hunter Trilogy. Uh, But just for the sake of clarity, for anybody who's not aware, uh, all three books of The Vampire and the Hunter Trilogy, they've already been written. I spent uh, roughly five years writing all three books and revising them and polishing them and uh, preparing them for publication. So now they're all ready to go. It's just a matter of When it's time to put them out. So book one is currently available. Book two will be published this summer. And the final installment of the Vampire and the Hunter trilogy, book three, will be published this fall. So those books are done. So when I say that I'm working on my next book, I mean, I'm specifically referring to the book that uh, I will publish after the Vampire and the Hunter trilogy. I don't know when it'll be published because I'm literally in the very beginning stages of it. I'm working on the first draft. Uh, as far as my outline goes, because I, I do work from an outline, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, specifically, I think I went into great detail talking about my writing process in episode 10. So if you want to get some of my thoughts on on my writing process and how I approach a novel, you can find that in episode 10 which, if I'm not mistaken, is titled Block of Words, or A Block of Words, something like that. Uh, So anyway, I work from an outline, and as far as the outline that I'm working from, I am currently in the middle of chapter 10. And uh, the book itself, I've outlined it to be roughly 50 chapters, but I know as I write it, the outline's going to change, and it's going to evolve, and... It'll expand, it'll shrink, and there's going to be times where it'll go to 60 chapters, and there'll be times where it's going to go to 40 chapters. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but ultimately that's kind of what happened. It's almost sort of this living, breathing organism. And until I get to the final chapter and write those final sentences, I won't really know exactly how long it'll be. And even after I finish the first draft, it's still going to change because I can go into the second draft, and in that second draft, as I go through my revisions... I might find that it, there's two or three chapters that maybe they don't belong there, or maybe there's two chapters instead of being two chapters, they should be fused into one chapter, or maybe there's one chapter that should actually be broken up into three chapters. So anyway, you get my point. So I have the outline, but I also know that it's, you know, it's uh, it's 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 not it's not set in stone. I can I can change it you know whenever I like as is necessary. So that's what I'm doing. So that said, having said all that. I'm currently writing chapter ten of my new novel, based on uh, the outline that I've worked out. Now, as far as the novel that I'm working on, I'm not going to give you a whole lot of details because, generally speaking, I like to keep you know details to my my uh, my my works in progress. I like to keep them quiet. I, I mean, I've talked to other people about them. I've had conversations about them. It's not like it's super duper top secret. But in general, I don't like to make public the the details of the work that I'm that I'm doing, but uh, but I can tell you in in terms of genre, it's not a horror novel. Not necess- I don't. At least I'm not approaching it as a horror novel. As I'm writing it in my mind, this is not a horror novel. I'm sure there's going to be scary things that happen. In fact, I know there's going to be scary things that happen. Uh, I, there's going to be thrilling things that happen, but I also don't think of it as a thriller uh, you know, as best as I could tell the way that the story exists in my head and the way that I've presented the story in outline form, I don't, I don't know exactly what to call it, but the, the, the best, I think the best sort of definition I have at this point, now that it needs one, by the way, like I don't need to define what it is, but if I was trying to give you an idea, if I was trying to define some parameters in terms of genre to help you sort of, you know, visualize what it is, I would, I would call it light fantasy. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a term. I don't know if anybody uses the term light fantasy, but it's a term that makes sense to me because it's a story that, that involves elements of fantasy. And when I think of fantasy specifically, I'm thinking of elements that, that don't exist in real life. So we call those fantasy but generally i think when we think of no, you know fantasy novels or fantasy movies or fantasy tv shows we probably think more in terms of high fantasy so something something like harry potter or once upon a time or uh i don't know superman or the avengers you know just you know fantasy where very high fantasy uh, involving you know maybe even higher than that you know Game of Thrones I've never seen Game of Thrones but as best as I can tell Game of Thrones is a is a show that deals with with high fantasy where you know large chunks if not the entire world is based in fantasy right this world does not exist except for in this show or in the book you know that uh, that it was adapted from. Um. So the book that I'm working on, the reason I call it light fantasy is because I have very I was gonna say small elements. They're important. There's 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 one very, very major element of fantasy that affects the story. And more than that, it affects my protagonist in the story. But um but the story itself exists in it exists in the real world. It it exists in a real contemporary setting that anybody who picks up the book when it's, you know, eventually written and published and able to be picked up in physical or digital form, they'll recognize the world. I've not, I'm, not, I'm not engaging in creating a whole new world that, uh, that doesn't really exist. I mean, you know, it's fictional. So as far as that goes, sure, sure. I'm going to create certain things. But even as I create things, the things that I create are based in the real world. So I don't think of it as fantasy. However, there are elements of fantasy, uh, and so, but I but I wouldn't feel comfortable calling it a fantasy novel or the very. It's certainly not high fantasy. So like so, so, right now I'm calling it light fantasy. And again, if that's not a term, then whatever. I guess I've I've coined a new term. I have no idea. There might very well there might very well be a term for what I'm trying to describe. But you know, I'm not very well versed in it. So. And truthfully, it doesn't matter. It's not important enough to me to to look it up to find out when the time comes to to publish the book and ultimately market and promote it. Then certainly it will be in my best interest to to you know to find out some of the best terms that I can use to attach to the book that will help potential readers you know uh, decide whether or not they want to buy it and ultimately read it. But for now, as I write it that stuff's not important Uh, beyond the, the, the light fantasy element that I've talked about in very vague terms. I can tell you that the, the book is based in the circus as a circus setting. So, uh, so it involves the circus and it involves some light elements of fantasy, uh, And it's an awful lot of fun. At least I'm having fun writing it. It's a story that I'm very excited about, and it's a story that I'm very much enjoying the process of writing. It's not going to be a series. It's going to be a a one-off. It's going. It's only going to be one book. So you'll read it, and uh, it'll only exist in that one, that one book. Um, Then again, I said the same thing about my vampire trilogy before it became a trilogy. So you know, I don't want to go. I'm not. I'm not setting any rules for myself up front. I'm just saying that as I work on it, I, I only intend for it to be a one-off book. And just now I specifically made reference to the idea of of rules and how I am not establishing rules for myself and that's true, but I also said that with a bit of a wink. You didn't see me wink because you can only hear my voice right now. But as I talk about writing on this week's episode, the primary theme of the episode this week is rules and specifically Writing rules, and ultimately, at the very least, up front, uh, I I do want to talk about how, from my perspective, there there are no rules in writing. There are no hard and fast rules. I I, I never talk to an aspiring writer or lead a writing workshop where I give the 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 writers in that audience rules and say follow these rules otherwise you're doing it wrong because I don't believe in that I mean I you know I I don't I don't believe in it for for very 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 personal reasons as as it involves my own writing and in, in general my own uh, my own creativity but I uh, but but more specifically I don't believe in it because there was a time early on in my endeavors to become a writer where i was presented with rules by by you know by people who i regarded as writing authorities partly because they were either presented as or they presented themselves as writing authorities and because i was a young aspiring writer trying to learn i believed them and so i was ultimately very very hindered and very stifled and uh, for at least a little while, I quit writing because of these rules they were so stifling but um but if, well actually you know what i'm 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 speaking way more generally than, than I intend to let let me tell you a very specific story this uh, let me tell you the specific story that that i 'm thinking about so i was uh, I was eighteen years old when I first when i first decided that writing was something that i wanted to pursue and 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 again i didn't necessarily i didn't necessarily come to this discovery by myself uh, something that i've covered more than once on this podcast is the importance of uh of my very dear friend and uh and and mentor and guardian angel sk murphy cuz if i hadn't met sk murphy when i was 18 years old and a freshman in college and she hadn't had the opportunity to to encourage me to be a writer, I probably would have never gone down this path. Um, I like to believe that maybe at some point I would have found myself on this path, but there's there's no way of knowing. What I know for certain is because I crossed paths with S.K. Murphy, who, by the way, you can hear my conversation with S.K. Murphy uh, very early. I think it's uh, episodes four and five of the podcast, something like that. Anyway... Uh, I was about 18 years old when she she was the first person who told me that I should be a writer. Now, before that, my entire life, I was very creative. So this was always something that I enjoyed, something I was always drawn to. I loved drawing pictures as a kid. I loved reading comic books as a kid. I loved watching movies as a kid. Uh, and one of the things that I enjoyed most about movies, even though I didn't know it at the time, my favorite thing about movies were was was engaging in a really wonderful story, I assume this is how everybody engaged in movies, so it never occurred to me that maybe i was I was engaging with something different than other people because now I know a lot of people engage with movies for different reasons. Many people love movies because they want to see really amazing action they want to see explosions and fights and killings and stuff like that. Some people watch movies because they want to see really deep and uh, intense romance. They want to see characters falling in love and falling out of love and getting married and having babies and and you know things of that nature. So there's different things about movies that that uh, you know that uh, that attract people. For me, I was attracted to stories, but I didn't know that. I just I just assumed, yeah, it, it, obviously, the movie there should be a story. So if there was a you know if there was a strong uh, and clear protagonist and they were they were on a, a journey of some sort and they engaged with uh, with interesting and complex supporting characters, and there was a, there was a very entertaining and engaging, and sometimes inspiring narrative that was unfolding along the way. All of these things were 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 wonderful to me. So, when I was a teenager, uh, I you know I I I decided that I wanted to be a filmmaker. I had no idea what that meant or what it entailed. I just you know, I just decided that uh, you know I love movies, so I should be I should be a filmmaker. But you know when I was when I was younger, unlike today, if you're if you're if you're a teenager today, you have a lot of a lot of uh, available options to make to make movies. I mean, you can literally, if you have a smartphone in your pocket, then you know right away you have the ability to make movies. And in fact, people make movies all the time now but it's so simple and available they probably just take for granted the technology you know when somebody goes on twitter or instagram and shares a 20 30 second video if somebody puts together a you know two or three minute video puts it on youtube something like that you know you're making movies cuz you have this technology available even if it's something as silly as i don't know just just filming your filming your dog trying to trying to claw a, a treat off the table but it's too far away and, it, and it's funny and it's engaging and you film it and you and you make it available on the internet it's super cool so anyway I, I you know I didn't that sort of technology wasn't immediately accessible when I was younger but when I was in uh, I believe it was junior high junior high maybe first year of high school but right around junior high uh one of my very best friends growing up uh Marcos he got a video camera for his birthday or for christmas something like that and uh and it was it, it was wonderful because he he was also enjoyed engaging in sort of creativity and and filmmaking so so we spent countless weekends you know with with our friends collaborating and and telling stories on film and again on, on video it wasn't film but you know we were making movies and and i mean you could watch the movies and visually they obviously they looked nothing like the movies we saw in the movie theaters they looked nothing like the movies that came out of hollywood but the process was so much fun and the creativity of it was so much fun and also because they didn't look like hollywood movies i understood that you know there was things for me to learn so i wanted to learn how to tell how to tell stories you know uh, on film and I also remember, right around this time, you know, right around it, somewhere in the area of teenager, young adult, watching the Academy Awards, and it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't the first time I'd seen the Academy Awards, but there was something specifically about this particular time. I was seventeen, eighteen years old, something like that, and there was something about. I think because I was more focused on loving movies and more focused on being creative and more focused and wanting to, to to make movies, and ultimately, what what I didn't. What I, what I think what I didn't realize, what I was most engaged by, was telling stories. It wasn't necessarily telling them in a visual medium, although I did enjoy it very, very much. And I still enjoy that process when I have the opportunity to engage in it. But beyond that, stripped down, it was the storytelling that I was enjoying more than anything else. So I was watching the Academy Awards and seeing people win win all these awards, and I remember the the one award that seemed the most accessible to me at that point in my life was the award for best screenwriting because I was thinking, well, well, writing I know how to write I, I literally I know how to spell I know how to put a sentence together, so how hard can it be to write? So I decided this might be a good way for me to to you know to to infiltrate the world of Hollywood and ultimately the world of filmmaking. So. Uh, My first semester at Chafee College, I enrolled in, was it a screenwriting class? See, now I'm drawing a blank. Was it screenwriting? You know, I don't think it was a screenwriting class. I think it was just a, I think it was a creative writing class. But um, either way, when I took this creative writing class, I took the class with the understanding that I would still learn the elements of storytelling because I, I I I knew that there was things that I needed to learn. And I also knew that there was things that I wanted to learn. I, I wanted to learn how to be a, a creative writer. So um, I, I enrolled in this class. And at the same time as I enrolled in this class, I enrolled in just, uh, you know, the the very basic freshman composition English class. That's the class that S.K. Murphy was teaching. So in her class, uh, I I was learning just English composition. And I also had her, you know, uh, encouraging me and inspiring me. And then in the other class, and again, you're gonna have to forgive my the, the chronology in my head, like, I don't know for certain if I took these classes at the same time, I know I took them in a very close proximity of time. In fact, the more I talk about it, I think I took Kay's class first, and then second maybe the maybe my very next semester i took this creative writing class either way stick with me that the principles of the story are, are still that that's ultimately what matters and so it was in this creative writing class where i was my my goal was to learn you know the elements of storytelling and creative writing but ultimately i wanted to apply them to screenwriting but along the way i discovered that i very much enjoyed storytelling on the page I enjoyed what would I learn? What, what I would eventually learn is called prose fiction right just 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 telling fictional stories on the page and writing separate from screenwriting because you know with screenwriting when you write a screenplay you don't you're not necessarily writing a screenplay because somebody is supposed to be entertained by the screenplay when you write a screenplay, what you're writing is a blueprint. And that blueprint is going to be used by a director to create a film. Uh, in, in the same way that a director uses a screenplay as their blueprint for a film, it's the same way that I use outlines as my blueprint to create a novel. So for me, the outline is kind of like the screenplay to my novel. But that's probably a separate discussion that uh, I'll, I'll I'll have another time with you guys. But in, anyway, in the meantime, the point is this. my I was always creative as a kid. That creativity manifested itself in, in a love for, or at the very least, an affinity for filmmaking. As I pursued an education in, in filmmaking, it led me into uh, discovering a love for prose fiction. And eventually, that led into a love of novels. And so, soon enough, there I was on this road. This road of reading novels, loving novels, loving fiction, loving writing... And so then it became very obvious to me that this is what I wanted to do, that I wanted to write novels. That, that was ultimately where I found myself. And, and it was exciting. And, and more than that, it just felt accessible. Because, you know, again, it, with movies, it was like, these are super cool, but who gets to make movies? It's like, it, it's like they exist in this other world. But writing, especially writing books or writing novels, or at the very least, writing short stories, it was as available as a pen and paper, right? That's all you needed. And luckily, around this time, you know, my my family had gotten we we gotten the first computer in our house, so you know, my my early attempts of writing were are also coinciding with my uh, early you know um, adaption of word processors. So so this is it all kind of goes hand in hand with me. Not that it's important to this story, but you know, it goes hand in hand. So fast forward about. Four or five years, which at the time felt like forever. Now, in retrospect, you know, it's nothing but at the time, about four or five years. And during that time, I'm reading books and discovering writers that I really love. And I'm also trying to write. But I, there's no formal creative writing education. There's not There's not really any creative, creative writing classes available, at least not at Chafee College for me at that time. So, a lot of my education, as far as writing goes, is just sort of on the job, just trying to learn on my own. I'm reading books, not not how to books, but just reading novels and then I'm going to to the computer and I'm trying to write stories and it's 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 fun because I'm engaging in something new and it's creative and I'm trying but it's also extremely frustrating because I know that I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. And I also know, or at the very least, I suspect that there are certain keys out in the world that if I had access to them, I could unlock whatever it is that would inform me on how to to tell a story, that that would give me the tools that I could then use to write a story. But I didn't know where they were, and I didn't know how to find them, and I didn't know how to access them, but I knew I desperately wanted them. So again, fast forward about four or five years from that time that i that I met s k Murphy and she you know encouraged me to be a writer, and then I started attempting to be a writer and then I graduated from Chafee college which is it's a two year community college uh it took me five years, so you know for, for any for any community college students out there who might be listening to me talk right now. It took me 5 years to get my 2 year degree. So for whatever it's worth, if you're also on the 5 year plan, don't feel bad. You're in good company. Most of us take more than 2 years, so don't feel bad. Anyway, that said, after after I finished my 2 year degree in 5 years, I transferred to Cal State San Bernardino or, or for for anybody who's not in California and you don't know the California State University system, the the long form title, I guess, is California State University San Bernardino, But, you know, there's several California state universities and, you know, different cities throughout the state. So the one I went to was in San Bernardino, which was essentially my backyard. It was like 25 minutes from where I grew up. And I majored in English there. I didn't know anything about the program except that it was the, the school was not far away. It was it was affordable, especially with the help of, you know, financial aid. And they had an English department because every school has an English department and then so I was going to major in English either way but then luckily within their English department they had the concentration of creative writing I didn't know that when I when I uh, applied to the school so it was just sort of you know for me just kind of worked out as a little bit of dumb luck I suppose so now I'm an English major uh, and for for a time frame if you're curious the time frame is two thousand and one so 2001 is my first year at Cal State San Bernardino I'm studying English and and at this time because of, because I'm a creative writing I'm in the creative writing concentration, there's now lots of writing classes and it's it's the most exciting thing in the world to me because I feel like I'm at a university which is this sort of cultural symbol of of learning and knowledge that in this institution, This is where there's all sorts of keys available that are going to unlock all sorts of information. So right away, I'm excited, but then more specifically, I'm in the English program, and then of course more specifically than that, creative writing. So I can only imagine how much I'm going to finally learn. You know, I've already applied a lot of work on my own to trying to get good at this. So now, you know, it, it it feels like think about if you've ever tried to get physically fit. And you know, okay, well, let me let me go run around the block, and let me go to the gym, and you're surrounded by weights. Well, let me try to lift weights, and you go to the supermarket, and you're like, well, let me try to eat healthy, and at some point, you say, you know, I I'm trying my best, but at the end of the day, I think I just need somebody to help help guide me and sort of teach me the right way to do things. You know, and then and then you do, and maybe you get a personal trainer, maybe you consult with a nutritionist, and you learn certain things, and it just makes everything make sense, and it puts it all in a focus. And before you know it, you know you're strong, and you're lean, and you're healthy, and you feel better than you have in your whole life. Right? That's how I felt when I got to Cal State San Bernardino. It's like I've tried it on my own, but now, now I'm in i I'm in an environment surrounded by, uh, by people with knowledge who are going to help help guide me and mold me and, and give me access to the information that I need to become as good as this, as I can possibly be. So it was the most exciting thing in the world. And so the very, very first class I that, that I signed up for was it was, I think it was literally in, introduction to creative writing, something like that. It was like the, it was, you know, it was, it was the first class that you take in this concentration to get the ball rolling. And I couldn't have been more excited to be there. And so, uh, first day of class, show up, and you know the teacher gets there, and I don't know the teacher, and for the sake of this uh, conversation, I'm not going to say, uh, I'm not going to say her name. I've I've referenced her before on the podcast, most recently when I talked to my 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 friend and my teacher and my mentor, James Brown. You know, I, I told him I told him a, a a truncated version of a of a story that I'll sort of tell you in a little bit more detail right now. But anyway, I'm not going to say her name, primarily because I had a very negative experience in her class, and I'm I'm not interested in, and you know, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm I'm not interested in attaching her name to, to to my negative experience, even though she was directly connected to it. So you know, I, I hope she's doing well wherever she is at this point in her life. But that said, first day of class, you know, I you know, she, she introduces herself, which, uh, which any good teacher will do. And so in part of her introduction, she tells us about herself and, and her career. And so, uh, so the first thing I learn about her is not only is she a writer, but she's a published writer. She's written books and she's written books that have been, uh, very, you know, positively and warmly received by, by readers as well as, uh, as, as well as critics or reviewers or whatever you want to call them. And so, and so this is very exciting to me. You know, this is, This is like, uh, uh, I don't know, like this is I want to be a writer, but I've never met another writer. at At the very least, I've never met a professional writer who's enjoyed any sort of professional success. And now here I am at this university in this classroom with 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 a novelist, professional and successful novelist standing not 10 feet away from me who for the next 10 weeks is going to be my professor and is going to help me learn the shit that I'm trying to learn. And so it was so fucking exciting and so important. I was, I couldn't believe my luck. And so one of the very first things that she did in class, it wasn't the first thing she said, but it was, you know, it was the first day of class for sure is she said, uh, how many of you talking to us, the students in class, how many of you have aspirations of, of being published authors? So I raised my hand And, of course, everybody else in the class raised their hand. There was, I don't know how many of us there were. Let's say there was 20 of us. I really don't remember. Could have been more, but probably not more than 20. 20 or 30. 30 is a pretty high number. I'll say 20. And so, but anyway, all of us raised our hand. And so she said, you know, okay, so go ahead and take a look around. And I'm I'm expecting the next thing she's going to say is going to be some sort of a positive affirmation that's going to, you know, it's going to be some something that I'm going to take home with me and be excited about and feel inspired about and, and make me feel good about this journey that I'm on. And so she says, look around. And then she says, look at all the people who want to be published writers just like you. These are all the people that you're competing with. And if everybody in this room wants to be writers and these are all the people you're competing with, just imagine how many writers are out in the world that you're also competing with. And... For about half a second or so, I tried to give her the benefit of the doubt, thinking, you know, that there must be some positive message in there. But ultimately, what she was telling us is, yeah, there's a lot of assholes who are trying to be writers, and there's a lot of competition. So, you know, if if, if you have any intention of being successful at this, you know, good fucking luck. Of course I'm translating what she said but this this is this is what I heard as she said it and even though I'm you know I'm I'm giving you the uh the very sort of harsh insecure version that I heard in my head it's basically the message she was giving us and especially on the first day of class when I was so very excited that was not the best thing in the world for me to hear and it didn't really get a whole lot better from that point forward and it, and again just to just to give you an idea of of you know the sort of reverence that this author slash you know writing professor had, I remember. I'll never. I don't know the girl's name, but I very very much remember there was a young lady in the class at the, at the back of the class, and when the class was over, uh, I think she she might have raised her hand to to ask the the teacher a question, and she literally told this writing professor, you know, I'm I'm not enrolled in this class i don't even plan on being in this class i just love your writing so much that i just wanted to be here to meet you so this is the sort of thing that this is the and again the reason that's important is because yeah you know, not, not only that the fact that there was this this young lady who came to the class just to be in the presence of this writer who she adored so much but she was also a professor and she was also teaching this program so it it did you know uh it, it did a number of things Right is it uh it well you know it she was she was in a position of authority she was uh she was presenting herself as and she was presented as an authoritative figure with with knowledge of creative writing, she had the success to back it up so so if you are in my position, then you know however discouraged I might have felt at that moment ultimately she's she knows what she's talking about, so I'm going to come back to this class. With the, with the uh, with with the intention of learning as much as I can from from this writer, because you know that that's 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 what I'm here for, and ultimately, what I got throughout this class. And I think it was you know we met twice a week, you know, a couple hours a class, something like that. And there was you know, we we get writing exercises, and there was some you know uh, some small group you know workshops. There was not a lot of. As the class progressed, there was not nearly as much structure as I would have liked, and there wasn't as many concrete lessons as I would have enjoyed. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I there was nothing I got out of the class, because, uh, you know, I'm sure there was... I'm, I'm sure there's... In fact, I know there was certain... I, 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 the reason I'm talking vaguely right now is I can't think of anything, but I know. I I know there was certain positive things that I that, that that came out of that class whatever they are I don't know I'll think of them later uh but the thing that I remember most is that uh she didn't so much give us writing lessons as she gave us writing rules she told us things not to do I don't have any really strong memories of her telling us Things that worked, or things that we should practice. I, I do remember very clearly her telling us things not to do and giving us rules in that fashion. And so one night, because it was, it was, an evening, it, was a, it was an evening class, one night I remember we you know, we we brought in a short story that she, she or maybe it was just a scene, whatever it was, it was. It was a short writing assignment she'd given us maybe the week before, and she'd asked if any of the students wanted to uh, volunteer to let her used their their work as an example for for a lesson i guess later on in the class uh so somebody uh, volunteered, volunteer then you know we took a break and she did a she she went and made a oh what do you call it uh, a trend like a transparency right where, where you you take the the paper and you you make a copy of it but it's on this transparent sheet then you put it on a on a projector, and you could put it up on the screen, of course now it's just there's there's way- especially as a teacher i can I can tell you for certain there's way better technology in terms of uh you know there's there's cameras on the projector and there's powerpoint there's all sorts of great things, but at this time you know there was a transparency It's not the point of the story, but for the sake of i guess accuracy that's what she did. She made a transparency, put it up on the screen, and then she took a uh, um you know just a, a marker. And she wasn't even reading what was on the story. I was thinking she was going to read the story, and then, I don't know. I don't know what I thought she was going to do. I just I, I do know that I thought it was going to be useful. And it was, like, the opposite of useful. So the first thing she did is she just went through, and she circled every instance of the word was, and she circled every word that ended with L-Y. So, you know, in any word that ended with L-Y. So happily, suddenly, favorably. I'm just literally just rattling words off the top of my head. But that's all she did. She wasn't looking at the story and she wasn't looking at the scene and she wasn't looking at characters or setting or anything. She was just circling all instances of the word was and all instances of words that ended with L-Y. And then she told us, uh, don't do this. Don't use was, don't use L Y. Um she encouraged us to use words that ended in ing, but to avoid was and, and L Y. And essentially what she was what she was teaching us was don't use the passive voice. Um and and you know, now in retrospect, it's been just about 15 years since I took her class and I've spent a lot of that time you know writing and learning about the craft and storytelling and you know all of that business and so I have a better understanding of the passive voice and I have a I have a much better understanding of of what she was trying to teach us and and it's not that there wasn't something useful in the core of what what she was trying to express to us however she was expressing it in a very, very discouraging and ultimately destructive way. I specifically here use the word destructive as opposed to constructive because that's, that's what it was. And more than that, she was giving us a rule. She was saying, don't do this. And so the next time I was, and again, you know, she, she's the authority figure. I'm not I'm not sitting there thinking, she doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about. I'm going to write whatever I want. I'm sitting there thinking, like, oh, shit, I can't believe I didn't know this. Thank goodness I'm in this class and she can tell me this. So, so the next time I go to write, specifically an assignment for her class, I'm trying to write without using the word was. And it's fucking difficult. And so then I thought, oh, well, maybe the trick is just finding words other than was, so... I don't know. Is maybe something like that. I don't know. Um, and then you know, trying to avoid "ly," but then what happened was, I became so focused on trying to follow these rules that she was giving us that I was less focused on just telling the story. And I was just like, "Well, this isn't very fun. I'm not really enjoying this process very much." But I guess this is what writing is. Maybe writing's not supposed to be fun. I I, I have no idea. And so ultimately, it was so. So, so here's, the, here's what happened is because I was constantly trying to focus on the rules she was teaching, I was no longer having fun with my writing. And the more that I struggled with the rules, because I never got comfortable trying to abide by these rules, the more I assumed that I was a terrible writer. Because, in my idea, again, because she was the voice of authority, she was successful, she was an author, she was published, she represented what i was endeavoring to achieve so if she said it i believed it so i was trying to abide by these rules and it was it was extremely stifling i was creatively stifled and i was mentally stifled and i just wasn't having fun but beyond that like i i just i just thought i was a terrible writer and 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 that feeling of being a terrible writer unfortunately it was only validate it was only validated with the professor's feedback of my stories cuz any feedback i got on my stories from this professor they always involved things that i needed to fix but she never took the time to point out anything that i might have been doing well so 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 in that instance i already feel like i'm a terrible writer you've given me these rules and i'm struggling with them and then when i do an assignment for you you know rather than giving me some some positive feedback on things that I'm doing well and that, that I can build on as well as some of the constructive stuff all I got was the things that I'm doing wrong and things that need to be fixed and things that I need to work on um I suppose the uh, the only really positive thing she did offer was that I could you know talk to her personally if if I like if I wanted to get more information on uh, the stuff that uh, that I wasn't doing well but but beyond that, yeah, you know, I was getting no validation. Uh, and then of course, within the, within the smaller workshops with the other students, it was, it was sort of similar. What I know now is that many, if not most creative writing students are every bit as insecure as I was. And, and a large way in which that insecurity is manifested is by trashing other, other students around you because it makes you feel better. So I was getting, you know, I was getting trashed. I'm whatever. I might be being harsh, but I was getting negatively uh criticized by the students around me. I was getting, you know, uh no positive uh confirmation from a uh, from the from the teacher in the class. So when when the class was over, I was absolutely positively convinced that I was a terrible writer. And I was so convinced that I was a terrible writer that I was walking around just literally I felt like a fucking idiot. I felt like a fucking idiot forever thinking that I could be a writer these are literally the thoughts walking around in my head on this campus was god you're so stupid I can't believe you ever thought you can be a writer thank goodness you took this class thank goodness you met this professor who knocked some sense into you thank goodness now you have the clarity to understand that you're fucking terrible at this and you can you can engage your energies in things that are more productive so I quit writing and, you know, it's not like I had a writing job that I quit. But just in my head, just mentally, I made the decision that I'm going to quit writing. I'm going to free myself of this burden of, of 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 wanting to be a writer because I'm not good at it. And that was the idea. I was still going to study English because I still enjoyed reading. and I And I enjoyed writing. I just figured I'm not going to be a creative writer. I'm not going to tell stories. I won't write novels. But maybe I'll be like a – maybe I'll be like a – I don't know. I'll I'll, I'll write uh, uh, critical analyses of of novels and short stories. Not be more of an academic writer. I figure because I still enjoy again the process of writing. I just realized, at least I felt this 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 isn't my thing. And there were a handful of key incidents that brought me back. Uh, three, in fact, but perhaps the most important a uh, key to um if it didn't necessarily stop me from quitting writing but at the at the very least it kept one foot in the in the world of writing and that was Chanel that was my my beautiful and loving and amazing supportive wife Chanel who in 2001 she was my my girlfriend she was my beautiful, loving, supportive girlfriend, Chanel. In 2001, we'd been together for two years. So very early in our relationship. Of course, two years in, especially when you're young, it feels like, you know, you guys have been together forever. But, you know, whatever. We were still young. But I, So I told Chanel because she was, you know, she was this very, very, very central, important person in my life. And so I told her that I was going to quit writing. In fact, I told her that I, I, I'm quitting writing. In fact, I had already quit writing probably in my head. It was, it was done. I was just telling her, just very matter-of-factly. I, I, there was no ceremony about it. I was making no big deal about it. It was just, you know, I'm going to quit writing. And she knew how important writing was to me. She knew how much I loved it, and she knew how much it meant to me and so she said uh, she said no you can't quit writing and i was like no it's it's okay i'm going to quit writing but i'm going to i'm still going to study english and i'm still going to i'll do something with this i'm just not going to be a writer anymore cuz i'm terrible at it i even told her that much i was like i know now that i'm terrible at it and she said you're not terrible you're you're a wonderful writer and i and you know and and we had this conversation i said no 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 i'm terrible but thank you and she said no you're not terrible you're a wonderful writer you're great at this And the funny thing is, I was actually getting frustrated with her because in my mind, I was like, listen, kiddo, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't have the benefit of learning what I've learned. And what I've learned is I'm fucking terrible at this. And if you knew what I know, you would also know that I'm terrible at this. And you wouldn't be saying something as silly as I'm good at this. And, you know, thank fucking goodness she refused to agree with me. She refused to accept, in her mind, that I was a terrible writer. And so here's what she said. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world, and I will be grateful to her. There's a million things that I'll be grateful to Chanel for, for the entirety of my life. But this is potentially at the top of the list. She said, okay, listen. If if you want to quit writing, that's fine. If you no longer want to pursue a career and a life as an author, that's fine. But please do me this favor. I love your writing. And I love your stories. And I love your imagination. So if you're going to write for nobody else, that's fine. That's that's between you and them. But I love your writing. So would you at least write stories for me? I'll be the only one that reads them. You don't have to write them for anybody else, but I love your writing. Would you please just continue writing stories for me? And uh, and I remember this conversation because we were in uh, in her bedroom where she grew up, and uh, sitting on the bed, just having this conversation. And so I thought, well, yeah, that seems harmless enough. If I'm going to write shitty stories, then uh, at least there's only going to be one person that's reading them. And if you really want to read these terrible stories I have to write, then uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. What's the big deal, right? So so that's so that's what it was. So I I wrote I continued to write. I didn't write every day and in my mind I was still quitting, but you know, if Chanel wanted me to write stories for her and I and I loved her very much and it meant that much to her, sure I would write stories. And so it kept one foot in the door, it kept it kept it kept my toe in the door away from completely shutting the door on writing altogether. The second thing that happened was, it was in uh it was towards the end of that, my fresh, well, not my freshman year. It was my first year at Cal State San Bernardino. At that point, I'd been in college for like six years, but I was taking a, it was a, it was an advanced composition class. It had nothing to do with creative writing, but it was, it was a composition class. The teacher's name was Roy Smith, a wonderful man and a wonderful teacher. Uh, I haven't seen him for a very long time. I, I don't, Think he teaches at Cal State San Bernardino anymore? But if he is, uh, I hope he's doing well. And if, and on on the off chance he's hearing this, which I doubt that he is, but you know, if he is out there hearing this somewhere, I hope he knows, or at the very least, he'll find out just how important he was to my life. This is the only class I ever took with him. Um, But at the end of his class, he he loved creative writing, and so at the end of his class, at the end of the uh, of the quarter, just for fun, just for the sake of doing something fun at the very end of the class. He gave us a creative assignment in the class, and uh, a creative writing assignment. And so he brought this blanket to class, this blanket that was in his family for several generations. And he told us the story about this blanket, and how it had been passed on from different generations in his family. And there was, you know, there was at least one very engaging, dramatic story. I think it involved maybe his grandmother, or his great grandmother, and knitting this. And there might have been war or death. I don't know. I'm, who knows if it was that dramatic, but. It was still a very, very engaging story he was telling us. And then for the assignment, for the and it was just an in-class writing assignment, he said, oh, I want you to take this blanket and I want you to tell your own stories. I want you to create a story based around this blanket. And so there was a part of me, the part of me that had quit writing, that mentally rejected this assignment. I was like, I don't want to do that because... I've I've quit. You don't understand. I This is I I've quit. I I I felt like an alcoholic who had stumbled into a bar and the bartender was trying to get me to to take a drink. And I was like, you don't get it. I've quit this. I I moved on. I'm a better person, right? Um. But anyway, I was like, well, you know, this is he's asking us to do this. So whatever. I'll just just whatever. I'll fucking do this. You know. So I I got a piece of paper and my pen. And without thinking much about it, I started telling a story about this blanket. And uh, the story I ended up just weaving off the top of my head involved two little boys' brothers. And they loved Superman specifically. That They loved the black and white TV show Superman starring George Reeves. And they loved Superman so much that they wanted to embody him. So they took their mom's blanket and they would wrap it around their, 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 their necks and their shoulders like a cape. And somewhere in their minds, I think amongst the two of them, they got this idea that if they had the cape, they could fly, and maybe that was true. So these two brothers, they went to the they went to the roof of their family's house with this cape, and, uh, and the younger brother was going to go first. And so he had the cape around his neck, and so he's so he decided he's going to jump off the roof. And as long as he has this blanket, he's going to fly. So he has the blanket and he runs and he leaps off the roof. And of course, there's no fantasy in this story. He can't fly. And uh but he does fall into a tree that's in the front yard, and as he's kind of, you know, tumbling through the branches, which breaks his fall, essentially, you know, gets some cuts and bruises, but you know, he's not severely injured. And the cape catches onto a branch, and then there he is hanging from this tree. You know, he's not strangling by the way, he's just hanging in a very safe manner. And as he's there hanging from the tree with the blanket, you know, mom comes home in the in the minivan, probably from doing some grocery shopping, and she sees the The kid there and she probably goes and gives him a spanking like a like a piñata at a birthday party and this is the story that i'm telling off the top of my head based on this blanket but as i'm telling the story the most amazing thing happens and i and i mean this literally i'm not exaggerating this physically as i'm writing my hand begins to shake as my body is filled with adrenaline and more than that it's filled with joy I am so fucking happy. Just telling a story is making me physically happy. And so in, in that moment, what I'm thinking to myself is, my God, this is making me so happy. And I was gonna quit doing this. So so I made the decision that I don't have to pursue a career as an author. I don't have to be a novelist. I don't have to do this professionally, but if something like if this makes if something makes me this happy, then then it's silly not to do it. It's a sin not to do something that makes me this happy. So I think even before I finish the story, I realize I'm going to keep writing. Yeah, you know, I, I, maybe I won't pursue it, but I'll just keep doing this because this makes me happy. The other thing in the class is the professor, he wanted to have a little bit of a contest. Again, just for fun, the the, the grand prize was a, was a hostess cupcake. I believe it was the, the chocolate cupcake with the creamy filling. And so we broke up into small groups. This is how we broke, in, broke up into small groups. Within the small groups, we would each read our stories to one another. Within the groups, the group would pick their favorite story. And then so there's maybe, say, there was like three or four groups. And so then the, the four winners of each group would come up, and they would read their stories in front of the class. And then the class would decide the winners on top of that. So I'll fast forward um, and just give you the, the happy ending, which is the class voted on my story. I won the grand prize. I won this host, Hostess cupcake. And, you know, it, it was so fucking amazing and it was so fucking important. And the reason that I've said fucking three times now in the last 10 seconds or so is I really want to emphasize how impactful this was. And I took the hostess cupcake and I went I left class and I went to my car. I think I even called my mom or Chanel. I called somebody. I had to call somebody because I knew that this day was 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 a it was a benchmark that so many important things would later happen in my life, and I knew I'd be able to track them back to this day and this wonderful man whose name is Roy Smith. And if if he's out there listening, I hope he understands how. Amazingly, he impacted my life, and uh, I never even ate the the cupcake. I put it in the freezer. I didn't want to eat it. It was a it was a trophy. It was it was it was symbolic. It represented something very very important to me, which was that I was not going to quit writing, and I was going to keep doing this. And this is something I enjoyed. And then from there, that's you know soon thereafter is when I enrolled in in the creative writing class with James Brown, and I and I talked about that experience in great detail in those episodes where where I where I had a Two part, you know, two hour conversation with, with my friend and professor and mentor James Brown. So you can go back and listen to it. But, uh, um, but, uh, but the importance of that was it was in James Brown's class that I, I entered his class with this new joy and motivation. And then what he did, again completely unbeknownst to him, is he completely built me back up. He gave me loads of positive, you know, reinforcement, positive feedback. There was also, you know, constructive feedback. There were still, these are, these are things you can work on. These are things to try to work on. But he also gave me tools, and he taught me how to write, and he taught me how to tell stories. Um, and then just from there, I went on and on, and things just got better and better and better. And I realized, the more I went on, I realized that all those negative things from that first teacher, the reason they were negative, beyond the lack of positive feedback, it was the rules, that she was putting these rules on me. And not me personally, but you know, may as well have been because that's in, in a classroom. Even if there's thirty students in a class, as as a student, you you're having sort of this one-on-one engagement with the teacher. You know, you don't hear what everybody hears; you hear what you hear. And so, what I was getting from this teacher were rules. This is how you write. Do these things. Do not do these things. If you do these things, you're doing it right. If you don't do these things, you know, whatever. And so, and so in you know James Brown's class he wasn't giving us rules he was just giving us tools and craft and 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 room to play and write and have fun and it was so much fucking fun again and from that point forward that that that's the path i've been on and you know and it's something like even just just a couple of weeks ago uh actually not even as i sit here recording it's literally a, a week ago uh, today just for the sake of anybody keeping track i'm recording on on sunday morning uh, it's, uh, it's, it's May 10th, 2015. It's a Sunday morning. So last weekend I was, I was a speaker at a, at a creative writing conference, uh, put on by the, by the California Writers Club Inland Empire branch. They were gracious enough to invite me as a, as a guest speaker. And, uh, one of the workshops that I, that I spoke in was, was on the, on the craft of, creative writing the craft of storytelling and you know the i one of the things that i that i told the class was if you know if uh if if there's nothing else you take away from this one thing that i want to just one thing i want to establish up front is that there are no rules in creative writing there is no one Hard and fast rule. There's no one hard and fast way. There's nothing set in stone that says you have to write this way. But I told them there are principles in writing. There are things, you know, they're not rules, but there are things that work. There are certain things that you can do, and if you do them, they're 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 going to help make for better writing. But they're certainly not rules. And then I went on to tell them that that's a sentiment that I that I learned in concrete terms from one of my very, very favorite movies, which is Adaptation. And and again, this is, you know, before I talk about the movie, which I'm going to talk about for a few minutes, but before I talk about the movie, I just want to sort of reiterate that that writing, creative writing, the key word in creative writing is creative. And creativity, it's supposed to be fucking fun. To be creative is 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 to have fun. And if you take the fun out of it, then what's the point? you know if you're engaging in in writing, especially if you're writing a novel because a novel it's a very big project, and there's a certain amount of discipline involved and there's a certain amount of work involved and you know there, there's a lot of hard work and it's not always fun, but at its core you're you're being creative and you're doing something that should be fun and if you're not having fun, you should take a step back and ask yourself why am I doing this if if ultimately you're not enjoying the process and so so that's why it's so important for me to tell any other aspiring writer especially if you happen to be listening to this right now that there are no rules. Take the rules out and just write and enjoy yourself and have fun and as as you write I mean you'll learn, you'll become a better writer and and hopefully along the way you'll pick up, you know, ideas and thoughts and philosophies and principles things along the way that'll help improve your your writing and storytelling but always you got to make sure you're having fun and and you know there's nothing that'll suck the fun out of something faster than a rule, or worse than that, rules plural. So anyway, that this idea of principles versus rules, I, I I learned in a concrete way from the movie adaptation, which is one of my very favorite movies. It's a two thousand and two film directed by Spike Jones, who, one of my very favorite directors. His most recent film was the movie Her, starring Walking Phoenix. Came out about uh, two years ago, something like that. Um. And it's written by Charlie Kaufman, one of my very favorite uh, screenwriters, in uh, you know working in in Hollywood. Uh, the movie itself it's based on the nonfiction book The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean's, or pardon me Susan Orlean. I just <laughs> added an S to her last name. Her name is Susan Orlean. So the movie is based on her nonfiction book. However, the primary narrative of the of the story sort of this meta fictional story. Is it, it's a story about the screenwriter Charlie Kaufman struggling to adapt the book *The Orchid Thief* into a movie. So you're watching a movie uh, written by a screenwriter who's the same as the mo- <laughs> the writer in the movie, and you watch him struggling to adapt the movie that you're currently watching. So it's this very fun sort of meta, you know, meta storytelling. And uh, you know, within the movie, one one of the there's a there's well there's several wonderful scenes but the 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 key scene that i'm referencing in terms of principles versus rules involves the the character charlie kaufman who in the movie is played by nicholas cage and so charlie kaufman he's having a conversation with his fictional twin brother donald kaufman who's also played by nicholas cage and so charlie very much like the the writer who wrote the movie that you're watching charlie is the more established successful and in terms of understanding you know the, the craft of storytelling and writing he's the more you know uh, educated writer his brother donald he's a novice who knows next to nothing about writing but he's trying to learn because he wants to be a screenwriter like his twin brother charlie so donald and his attempt to learn how to become a writer He attends a seminar by the very, very well-known creative writing instructor, Robert McKee, who's a real person who really does creative writing seminars. In the movie, he's played by, uh... Oh, God, what's his name? He's one of my very, very favorite, uh... character character actors. Brian Cox. That's his name. Oh, I fucking love Brian Cox. Anyway, Brian Cox, he plays the, the Robert McKee character. I say character, even though, again, Robert McKee is a real person. Um... So Donald comes home, and he's very excited and inspired following this seminar, and he starts telling his brother Charlie about the principles of writing that uh, McKee was, uh, was teaching them about. And so Charlie cuts off his brother, and he tells him there are no rules in writing. And Donald tells him, not rules, principles. Donald goes on to say, a rule says you must do it this way. A principle says, "This works, and has for all remembered time." And I love that. I fucking love that, and I never forgot it. It, you know, again, the movie is from two thousand and two, so I saw it in the theater thirteen years ago. I saw it two or three times in the theater, uh, and it, you know, from the, the first time I watched it, it just felt like a revelation. And it could have just been that I was, you know, young and trying to learn how to be a writer myself. But this movie, and you know, it's probably not too much of a stretch or coincidence, coincidence to say that I also saw this movie in the same general time span that I was also uh, feeling very dejected and ready to quit writing. You know, this is not long after that whole experience. So that there's probably a lot that goes with why I love this movie so much. And so the fact that I saw that scene and I heard that idea of a rule says you must do it this way. And the principle says this works and has for all remembered time That's all I needed to free myself of the idea that there are no rules in writing. Just, just write, and I could use the word "was" as much as I want, and I could finish. uh, I could write a word that ends in "ly" as much as I want, and if I want to write in the passive voice, I can write it. I could write in the passive voice as much as I goddamn well please, as long as I'm having fun and engaging in the creative writing process and along the way i can i understand that there's just certain writing principles that i don't have to follow these principles i don't have to do them but if i do choose to engage with them i'm i'm engaging in a principle that there is evidence that that, that this works and it has worked for as long as anybody can remember right that was it was just the most wonderful and useful thing and and, and to this day it's something that i that i that's sort of that I that I hold very much at the core of my of my writing of my writing toolkit. So so anyway, all that said, when I write, I don't have rules that I follow because that's restrictive and it makes the process less fun. There are, however, principles that that work uh, for me and they work for many other writers, and I do adhere to these principles. But should there come a time where, you know, there's a certain principle that I've used in the past and for for maybe a given project or a given time it's not working or I'm not enjoying it, then I'll fucking cut it loose. Like, I'm not going to do it just because it worked before. I'm only going to do it if, it's just, if it helps me engage in this creative process and helps it make it more fun and enjoyable. But I'm not going to do it just because, you know. Um, but that said, there are principles that I do sort of use and adhere to and go back to over and over again because, for me, they've resulted in writing that I both enjoy and writing that I am very often proud of and very proud and excited to present to a a reading audience. Now, I wanted to share the audio of the scene that I described from Adaptation, but I couldn't find it anywhere online. So instead, because I I don't want to move on without sharing something from this wonderful movie, I'm going to share what is perhaps my very favorite scene in the movie— and it's a scene where Charlie Kaufman, who is struggling with his own writing, uh he try you know, as he's trying to adapt the this book by Susan Orlean, uh he attends the Robert McKee storytelling seminar that his fictional twin brother Donald had previously attended. And so again, the the character of Robert McKee, he's played by the wonderful actor Brian Cox. So during the seminar, Charlie asks a question. And Robert McKee played by Brian Cox, gives just an absolutely brilliant and devastating response, which I'm going to play for you right now. Yes? Sir, what if a writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change, they don't have any epiphanies, they struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved? More a reflection of the real world.
1: The real world? Yes, sir the real fucking world first of all you write a screenplay without conflict or crisis you'll bore your audience to tears secondly nothing happens in the world are you out of your fucking mind people are murdered every day there's Genocide, war, corruption. Every fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love. People lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. And why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? I don't have any use for it. I don't have any bloody use for it. Okay, thanks. Oh,
0: goddammit, I love that movie, and I love that fucking scene. It's probably my favorite scene in the movie, even though Robert McKee is being so, you know, destructive and mean and and sort of you know there's so much uh <laughs> i don't know it, it it's a vicious response but uh, i don't know <laughs> beneath the viciousness of it i i agree with everything that he's saying and it just it's just a you know in terms of a of a, of a of a scene in a movie it's just very funny and engaging and it's just it's just great um this is probably as good a time as i need to tell you that Let's say let's say you've not seen Annotation and you would like to watch it. It is available uh on DVD and Blu-ray. So if you wanted to get yourself a copy of it, you may as well go to amazon.com. But if you're going to go to amazon.com, uh please first go through my website, martinlestrapshow.com. That's the official website of this podcast. When you go there, click on the shop button. It's going to take you to the shop page. From there, you're going to see an Amazon banner. Click on that banner. It's going to take you to Amazon.com. Go ahead and buy Adaptation, directed by Spike Jones, written by Charlie Kaufman, starring Nicolas Cage. And uh, because you bought the movie through Amazon, through my website, Amazon, in turn, they'll kick back a few pennies our way here at the podcast. We then get to take those pennies and reinvest them into the show, and that allows us to make this show as good as we can possibly make it for you, which is exactly what we want to do, week after week after week. So, uh, so you know, it's a great movie. You should watch it. I love it. Um, so go do that. I do, especially if you're somebody who loves writing. I don't. I don't think anybody who loves writing can watch the movie adaptation and not fall in love with it like I did. So go do that. But anyway, why am I sitting here talking to you about writing rules and principles and whatnot? Uh, I've already been talking to you for over an hour, and I'm going to be completely honest with you. When I started this podcast, I did have the purpose of talking to you guys about writing, specifically writing rules and principles and things of that nature. But I also had a specific a a, a specific goal in mind. And I thought, well, before I begin that goal, let me preface it, right? And that preface I had intended to last somewhere in the area of 10 minutes before I got to the rest of what I wanted to talk about. We're already, you know, an hour, hour, 10 minutes into this. So um, clearly I had a lot more to say than I realized. But now I want to get to the part that that I absolutely here here's here's what inspired this episode at all beyond just my love of writing and thinking about it and talking about it and the fact that I'm working on a new novel more than anything what inspired this particular episode that you're listening to is an article i read on the internet in february so just you know just 2 2 months ago something like that and uh, the, the article I read was on ScreenCraft.org is where I saw it. And it was called, or it is called, it continues to be called because it still exists. But the article is called Elmore Leonard's Ten Rules of Writing. And Elmore Leonard, I'm sure many of you know, he uh, was a, a very successful and famous novelist. Many of his novels were Adapted into uh, very successful feature films and television shows. Um, I well, in full disclosure, I know I know who Elmore Leonard is, but I've never read any of his books. I've not avoided them, and I completely suspect that one of these days I'll pick up an Elmore Leonard book and and read it. Um, and I and I'll probably enjoy it. At least I hope I will. But that said, you know, again, full disclosure: I've never read an Elmore Leonard book, but I know his name, and I know that he's successful, and I know that he's famous. He passed away in 2013, so a couple of years ago. Um, his Ten Rules of Writing. He, well I don't know when he wrote them. I know that there's actually a book uh, that's based on that, you know, based on his rules. That you can buy. You can also buy that on Amazon.com. It's got some cool illustrations in it but i but i read this in in an article on screencraft.org and just when i just when i saw the title right away i had to open it cuz you know anything that involves writing rules you know it ruffles my feathers right away and because i cuz again you know you you know how i feel about that cuz i spent over an hour telling you how i feel about it and why i feel that way so if this very successful and famous writer has documented his ten rules of writing. You know, I my first thought is, well, you know, fuck that guy. That sucks. Why would he go put rules out into the world, especially writing rules? It's only gonna stifle writers like a young Martin Traps who's just trying his best to figure this shit out. And again, even though I didn't, I've never read any of his work. I do know that he's a very respected, and prolific, and successful writer. So I, 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 I wanted to see what this guy had to say. So I opened up the article and I read it, and it turns out that Elmore Leonard and I agree on a whole lot, especially where it concerns the craft of creative writing and storytelling, and um, and I wasn't all that uh, I wasn't all that put off by the 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 rules that he was that he was espousing. So so what I wanted to do, what the ultimate purpose of this episode was is I wanted to go over Elmore Leonard's 10 rules of writing and then just kind of give you my thoughts on each individual rule, which I'm going to do right now. But the, you know in my mind that was actually going to be the entirety of this episode. So the fact that it's taken me over an hour to get here, whether that's a good or a bad thing, I'll leave that for you to decide. But for what it's worth, I've uh, I I've, I've very much enjoyed uh this this conversation we've had up to this point so anyway uh the the article the, the article is was was put together by cameron Cubison for screencraft.org and um well i'll I'll just i'll start from i'll start from the top and then once we get into the rules then i'll i'll start i'll, I'll read you the rules i'll read you elmore elmore leonard's uh thoughts on the rules and then i'll give you my thoughts on his rules and we'll kind of go from there that sound good to everybody Alright, so so here is uh here here's the top of the article. There weren't many writers more prolific, sure footed, Hollywood influential, or just plain cool than Elmore Leonard, the Dickens of Detroit. Over a fifty plus year career, Leonard penned dozens of best selling westerns, crime comedies, and thrillers, both in print and for the silver screen. Get Shorty, Jackie Brown, Three Ten to Yuma, Joe Kidd, FX's long running Justified, The Big Bounce, Out of Sight, and Life of Crime are just some of the notable adaptations produced from his inimitable prose. Before his death in 2013, Leonard shared the 10 rules of writing he acquired over a very long run with the Detroit Free Press. Reprinted below, see if they enlighten your approach to the craft. So that was the, uh, that brief intro, that that was written by Cameron Cubison. Everything else I'm going to read to you is from the pen of Elmore Leonard, starting now. These are rules I've picked up along the way to help me remain invisible when I'm writing a book. To help me show rather than tell what's taking place in the story. If you have a facility for language and imagery and the sound of your voice pleases you, invisibility is not what you are after, and you can skip the rules. Still, you might look them over. Number one, never open a book with weather. If it's only to create atmosphere and not a character's reaction to the weather, you don't want to go on too long. The reader is apt to leave ahead looking for people. There are exceptions, if you happen to be Barry Lopez, who has more ways to describe ice and snow than an Eskimo, you can do all the weather reporting you want. So that's that's Leonard's first rule. So again, to repeat rule number one, never open a book with weather. And uh, I don't really have strong thoughts about this, and frankly, it's never even occurred to me whether or not to start a story with weather. But... um. I, I, I guess i sort of agree with it i've never thought of it but having read his rule it makes sense to me i suppose part of his rule might be inspired by that often cliched story opening that most everybody even non-writers are familiar with you've heard it because it goes like this it was a dark and stormy night I'm sure you've heard that. And so that, that's literally an opening that's starting with the weather. So maybe that's in part what inspired Elmore Leonard's first rule. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I guess it's a good rule. I'd agree with Leonard because, you know, for me, for my own writing, um, I, I agree that it's best to start with character in some form or fashion. Or beyond that, it's, it's, it's good to start with action. You know, whether you're starting with dialogue you know, you you, maybe you you hear a character saying something, you hear a conversation taking place, um, you see a character engaging in some sort of an action, or you see a character being affected by an action that's happened to them that's going to kind of get things going. Um, for the reading experience, I think it's just more engaging. So so I would agree with that. In general, it it probably is not the best thing to do to start your book with heavy scenes of a description whether it's weather or or something else cuz your reader is very likely to get bored in a hurry and that and that's a very important thing to consider you should always consider the reader and you should always consider how important it is not to bore the reader so um so yeah rule number 1 never open a book with weather I would agree with that I'll 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 check that with a yes so now on to rule number 2 so here is rule number 2 and then Leonard's thoughts on that rule. Rule number two, avoid prologues. They can be annoying, especially a prologue following an introduction that comes after a foreword. But these are ordinarily found in nonfiction. A prologue in a novel is backstory, and you can drop it anywhere you want. There is a prologue in John Steinbeck's Sweet Thursday, but it's okay because a character in the book makes the point of what my rules are all about. He says... I like a lot of talk in a book, and I don't like to have nobody tell me what the guy that's talking about looks like. I want to figure out what he looks like from the way he talks. Figure out what the guy's thinking from what he says. I like some description, but not too much of that. Sometimes I want a book to break loose with a bunch of hoop-de-doodle. Spin up some pretty words, maybe, or sing a little song with language. That's nice. But I wish it was set aside so I don't have to read it. I don't want hoop-de-doodle to get mixed up with the story. And so those are those are uh, those are Elmore Leonard's thoughts on world number two avoid prologues now for me, I happen to be a big fan of prologues so Leonard and I we're gonna have to we're gonna have to have a difference of opinion here I agree with his logic that prologue is generally backstory and as, as far as backstory goes, you can slip it into any part of the book anywhere you like but for me, slipping a uh, slipping backstory anywhere you like, it also includes the beginning. It also just so happens that each of my first two books, Inside the Outside and most recently, The Vampire, the Hunter and the Girl, each of those books begin with prologue. Or they they begin with a prologue, I guess might be the more appropriate way to say that. But I don't include I don't I don't include prologues as a rule, and I don't even necessarily include them as principle or out of principle, it's I'm just a fan. I I like prologues and if I am a fan of prologues, which which I am, it's because of a trip Chanel and I took to San Francisco about twelve or thirteen years ago. Coincidentally we were going to visit that same friend that I mentioned about an hour or so ago, Marcos, who had the video camera when we were in junior high and we used to make movies. Um he's married now to a, a very, very lovely, you know, young lady named Michelle. So we went to visit Marcus and Michelle at their home in San Francisco. This is about 12 or 13 years ago. And uh, while we were visiting, they took Chanel and I to this really amazing bookstore in San Francisco. Uh, I can't remember that. I can't remember the name, but of course uh, most every bookstore in San Francisco is amazing. So you could probably just pick one and maybe that's the one that I was at. But anyway, whatever this bookstore was, I, I remember it had like three or four stories, and it was just like this. It was, it was it was it was huge. I'd never seen a bookstore this big or with this many levels, and and it was just so really fun and amazing to just kind of, to to kind of get lost in there. And so as I browsed through the store, I picked up a copy of Vladimir Nabokov's very famous and controversial novel Lolita. I'd never read it before, and I only knew its title because of its titillating and controversial reputation. So I opened it up and I read the beginning, which is a prologue. And as I read this prologue, I was absolutely floored. And I thought to myself, this is how a book needs to start. Not necessarily that it needs to start with a prologue, but it needs to start... With with words and language and just something that just fucking knocks you on your ass. And so in this particular prologue in the Lita, it, it was the language and it was the tone and and it was the rhythm of it. And of course, it was you know it was also it was it was beginning, you know, the the story that was about to unfold. And uh, and I even I even considered, you know, reading you the prologue, because cause I want I want you to hear I wanted to, I wanted you to hear you know, what what i what i read but but if i try to read it to you there's no way that i could fully do it justice so instead what i'm going to do is i'm going to let you listen to world class and academy award winning actor jeremy irons read it to you and with jeremy irons reading the prologue i suspect you will have a, a a better there's a better probability that you will feel what I felt in that amazing bookstore in San Francisco as I read the prologue to, uh, to Lolita. So here's, here's Jeremy Irons reading the prologue to Lolita.
1: Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul. Lolita, the tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth. Lolita. She was low, plain low in the morning, standing four feet ten in one sock. She was Lola in slacks. She was Dolly at school. She was Dolores on the dotted line. But in my arms, she was always Lolita. Did she have a precursor? She did, indeed she did. In point of fact, there might have been no Lolita at all, had I not loved one summer a certain initial girl child, in a princedom by the sea, or when? About as many years before Lolita was born as my age was that summer. You can always count on a murderer for a fancy prose style. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, exhibit number one is what the seraphs, the misinformed, simple, noble-winged seraphs envied. Look at this tangle of thorns.
0: Ah, oh, fuck. How good was that? You know what, I, I think uh, there should be some sort of a law put in place that Jeremy Jeremy Irons has to read everything, to me anyway. He should read any, any any book that ever exists. I want Jeremy Irons to read it to me. Incidentally, the, the book that I'm working on right now that I referenced at the beginning of this episode, my light fantasy novel that's set in the circus, that book does not start with a prologue. Um, and, you know, it's not... it's. For, for for no good reason, like I'm like I didn't make a decision not to include a prologue, just I just you know whatever I just started with chapter one and I and I started writing. If at some point in the in the writing and the production of this new novel, if I decide that a prologue makes sense, then I will include a prologue. But for now, doesn't have one, so I'll tell you more about that story as it develops. But moving on to rule number three. So here is Elmore Leonard's. Rule number three. Never use a verb other than said to carry dialogue. The line of dialogue belongs to the character. The verb is the writer sticking his nose in. But said is far less intrusive than grumbled, gasped, cautioned, lied. I once noticed Mary McCarthy ending a line of dialogue with, she and had to stop reading to get the dictionary. So those are Elmore Leonard's thoughts on rule number three, never use a verb other than said to carry dialogue. And if, uh, if, if the question is do I agree with him, the answer is yes. Yes, 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 and more yes. I couldn't agree with Elmore Leonard any more on this. Now I know why a writer, or at the very least a a beginning writer like I was once upon a time trying to learn the craft, I understand why that writer would end uh, a line of dialogue with something other than said. And my thoughts on that are they're worried about sounding repetitive or unoriginal, that if you end every line of dialogue with he said, she said, that it doesn't look creative enough, it doesn't appear to have enough variety. But the thing is, nobody is reading your story because they want to see how many ways you can tag your dialogue. In fact, uh, I even admire what Nick Hornby does. Nick Hornby is one of my very favorite novelists. He's written uh, books that – if you've not read the books, maybe you've seen movies that were adapted from them, including About a Boy, which was not only adapted into a movie, but it's currently been adapted into a TV show on NBC Also, wonderful movie, High Fidelity, and others. But Nick Hornby, wonderful writer. I love his books. And one thing that he does, almost to a fault, is he basically never tags his dialogue. So not only doesn't he have, like, he said, she said, he has nothing. He'll just have just lines of dialogue one after the other, and it's up to the reader to be paying attention and to know who's saying what. Or when a line of dialogue starts, it's generally up to the reader to be able to decipher who's saying it based on the the tone or the words or, or whatever, and that's cool. I appreciate that. He's also giving a lot of credit to the reader that the reader can keep up. Um, I don't. I'm not quite that drastic, but I do use the dialogue tags at a minimum. And for me, if I can avoid it, if I can write a di- if I can write a line of dialogue and not include he said she said, then I will. I'll, I'll I'll I will not use it at all. But if it's a line of dialogue where I'm pretty certain that the reader's not going to know who's talking, then I'll include it. But I keep it simple, you know. He said. She said. Or you know the character's name. You know, Timber said. John said. Hey Sue said. You know something like that. But never more than that because again anything more than that it's it's uh, it's bringing attention to the writer and it's taking attention away from the character which is where the attention belongs as Elmore Leonard already articulated and as I very much agree with so so we so so we agree on rule number 3 so moving on to rule number 4 here is Elmore Leonard's rule number 4 never use an adverb to modify the verb said He admonished gravely. To use an adverb this way, or almost any way, is a mortal sin. The writer is now exposing himself in earnest, using a word that distracts and can interrupt the rhythm of the exchange. I have a character in one of my books tell how she used to write historical romances, quote, full of rape and adverbs, close quote. So that's uh, Elmore Leonard's rule number four. Again, never use an adverb to modify the verb "said," and if it's not clear enough, I would say that this is an extension of the previous rule. So once again, I agree with Elmore Leonard here. Uh, as, far, as far as what an adverb is, this—I <laughs> guess—I almost sort of have mixed feelings about it because this this kind of goes back to what I talked about earlier with that with that professor, with my first creative writing professor from Cal State San Bernardino who burdened me with all sorts of writing rules. And one of those rules was don't use words that end in L-Y. And generally that's what an adverb is. This is a word that ends with L-Y. So that said, I agree with what Leonard is saying here, specifically because he's referring ultimately to dialogue, right? So the idea is this. Um... Rather than use an adverb to modify the word said, use your writing skills to make clear how to read what the character has said and how they've said it. So if a character is angry, give them dialogue that sounds angry. If the anger isn't apparent in the words, then give them an action that demonstrates their anger. Let them pound their fist on a desk or kick over a chair. This is way more interesting and engaging for your reader than saying, he told her no, angrily. Or, no, he said, angrily. Right? You can do that. Or, you can maybe go with this direction. No, he said. He pounded his fist on the desk, kicking over the trash can, before turning and looking her dead in the eye, opening in his mouth but saying nothing right the only line of dialogue there was the word no and then i follow that up with actions to show you that this character was angry and then for the reader you now know he's expressing himself with anger and i don't have to say he said angrily but again you know whatever i can't help i can't help but be reminded of that professor who shall remain nameless who hated adverbs but that said, you know, even though I can't quite separate her and that experience from this rule, I still would agree with uh, with Elmore Leonard here. And you know what? If that teacher that I had back in 2001, if she'd explain herself in this manner, then maybe it would have made more sense. And maybe I could have applied it more readily to my work. But she didn't. So anyway, moving on to rule number five of Elmore Leonard's 10 rules of writing. Rule number five, keep your exclamation points under control. You are allowed no more than two or three per 100,000 words of prose. If you have the knack of playing with exclaimers the way Tom Wolfe does, you can throw them in by the handful. So rule number five, keep your exclamation points under control. Once again, I agree with Elmore Leonard here. As a general rule, and this is just a rule for myself, And, you know, just for the sake of consistency, I won't even say it's a rule, a general principle that I apply to my own writing. I don't use exclamation points in my prose ever if I'm writing in the third person. If I'm writing in the third person, my sentences only end in periods or occasionally in a question mark, if it makes sense, but never in an exclamation point. If I'm writing in the first person, where the voice of the narrator is is actually a character, then I'll occasionally allow for an exclamation point if it makes sense and seems needed, but it's rare that either ever happens. It's rare that it ever makes sense or that it's needed. What's worse than overuse of exclamation points is writing in all caps, which is to say, if you're not familiar, writing a word or an entire sentence in all capital letters I fucking hate that. I hate when I see all caps in prose. It just looks lazy to me. For me, to, when I see all caps, it's a writer's way of trying to give a visual cue to the reader that the prose is now yelling. I'm yelling now because it's all caps. Or they write in all caps, they write in all caps simply because they, they want to, they're desperately trying to make the point that you as the reader you need to pay attention to this point and it's it's so important that you pay attention to this point that i'm going to write it in all caps so you can't miss it but the thing is if it's a good point and you've presented it effectively with solid craft then you don't need to put it in all caps the reader is going to get it and it's just more elegant and more fluid and you're not jarring the reader's attention. So so yeah, I added the uh, the all caps thing, but you know, I think it I think kind of goes hand in hand with the exclamation point thing. So moving on to rule number 6. So here's rule number 6. Never use the words suddenly or all hell broke loose. This rule doesn't require an explanation. I have noticed that writers who use suddenly tend to exercise less control in the application of exclamation points. So that's all Elmore Leonard had to say about rule number six. Uh, Similar to rule number one, for me, this is something that I have never thought about. I have never given any thought to not using the words suddenly or all hell broke loose. But I suppose I get Leonard's point. Uh, But if I had to give it a yes or no on whether or not I agreed, I'd give it a soft no with a small n. So I'm going to say that I don't agree with this rule. Primarily because I'm not a big fan of removing words from a writer's arsenal. So if you're a writer and the word suddenly does the trick for you, then you should use it. And if you do use it, I doubt you'll find many readers who are going to object to your use of it. As for the phrase, all hell broke loose, my guess is Leonard is leaning toward the show-don't-tell rule of writing. So rather than telling the reader, all hell broke loose, you should show them what your scene looks like as all hell breaks loose. It could also be Leonard's warning warning you against using trite or cliched phrases. Uh, and, you know, all those things make sense, but because he didn't really explain any further, I'm, I'm at this point I'm only projecting what he might mean. So in general, if I'm just basing it on the rule, don't use word, the word suddenly or all hell broke loose, I'm going to say no. I don't agree with Leonard here. Rule number seven. Use regional dialect patois sparingly. Once you start spelling words and dialogue phonetically and loading the page with apostrophes, you won't be able to stop. Notice the way Annie Proulx captures the flavor of Wyoming voices in her book of short stories. Close range. This this one here, rule number seven, this is a big one, and I agree 100% with Leonard. First of all, if you're going to write phonetically so as to represent a regional dialect, you'd better have that sound down pat. It's got to be so good and so clear that the reader will never question what the hell you're doing. Anytime you stray away from proper spelling, you're making the reader work harder than they probably want to. Don't forget, your book isn't homework, unless, of course, it's been assigned by a teacher or something, but barring that, your book is not homework. In all likelihood, your book is being read because the reader wants to enjoy themselves. so making them work harder might be just enough to turn them off and put your book down. That said, if you've got the sound of the dialect down and you know just how to represent it phonetically so that the reader can seamlessly and fluidly read it without losing the rhythm or the pace, then you'll be okay. Here's a rule that I just thought of if you're not sure that you can write dialect phonetically then you probably can't so don't do it but that said if you want to do it then you should at least try you're not going to know if you don't try i've tried it just for you know full disclosure i've i've taken my attempt more than once more than once at writing Writing dialogue phonetically, and 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 if 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 you're not clear on what, what I'm even talking about there, or what Elmore Leonard's talking about, to write phonetically means to to write a word specifically in the way that it sounds, as opposed to its proper spelling. And so when when you're talking about dialect, or if you're talking about somebody having an accent, and you're trying to represent that dialect or that accent in writing. Then the way that most writers do it is they write it phonetically so that when a reader reads it, what they're hearing is the accent or the dialect. But again, you've gotta know that sound and you've gotta know it so clearly that you can represent it phonetically on the page. And if you can do that, then you're gonna be fine. If you can't do that, it's probably gonna throw the right it's gonna throw off the reader, and there's you know, they might not finish your book and you don't want that. So so you know. As a rule, I wouldn't say don't do it, but I would definitely say only do it if uh, if you've got a handle on it. So this is a rule that I would agree with Elmore Leonard on. So moving on to rule number eight. We're almost to number ten. Can you believe that? So rule number eight. Avoid detailed descriptions of characters. Which Steinbeck covered and Ernest Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants... What do the American and the girl with him look like? She had taken off her hat and put it on the table. That's the only reference to a physical description in the story, and yet we see the couple and know them by their tones of voice, with not one adverb in sight. So rule number eight, avoid detailed descriptions of characters. Here's another one where Elmore Leonard and I agree. For me, a character isn't based on how they look, what they wear, or anything like that. A character becomes real for me when I know the more intangible parts of who they are. What's their favorite color? What makes them laugh? What are they ashamed of? What scares them more than anything else in the world? That's the stuff that makes your character real. That doesn't mean you avoid all details. And this is implied in the rule itself. Leonard says avoid detailed descriptions not all descriptions so certainly feel obliged to give some details just don't go crazy because you think it's going to make your characters more three-dimensional in the reader's mind so so again for rule number eight elmore leonard and myself we both agree on this one so moving on to rule number nine rule number nine don't go into great detail describing places and things unless you're margaret atwood and can paint scenes with language or write landscapes in the style of jim harrison but even if you're good at it you don't want descriptions that bring the action the flow of the story to a standstill so that's rule number 9 and yes i would agree with this uh it's sort of it's it's sort of an extension of, of the previous rule which at its core is saying To give more action than detail. For example, if there is a fist fight happening in your story, don't stray away from the fight to tell me about the weather, or the cars driving by, or the rustling of the wind through the leaves, or the dogs barking. Those are all fine details if they matter to what's happening, but if the fight is the point, then show me the fight. Show me balled-up fists and bloody knuckles." show me chipped teeth and black eyes show me tears and gasps and screams and cries action is the thing the reason most audiences prefer movies and TV to reading is because there's action there's literally something happening on the screen try to capture that same experience in your writing now that doesn't mean every single line you write has to be action but it should still be interesting in fact it ad- better be interesting. Otherwise, you're begging your reader to move on to something other than your book. And finally, rule number 10. Here it is. Try to leave out the part that readers tend to skip. A rule that came to mind in 1983. Think of what you skip reading a novel. Thick paragraphs of prose you can see have too many words in them. What the writer is doing, he's writing Perpetrating the hoop-de-doodle, perhaps taking another shot at the weather, or has gone into the character's head, and the reader either knows what the guy's thinking or doesn't care. I'll bet you don't skip dialogue. My most important rule is one that sums up the ten. If it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. Or if proper usage gets in the way, it may have to go. I can't allow what we learn in English composition to disrupt the sound and rhythm of the narrative. It's my attempt to remain invisible, not distract the reader from the story with obvious writing. Joseph Conrad said something about words getting in the way of what you want to say. If I write in scenes and always from the point of view of a particular character, the one whose view best brings the scene to life, I'm able to concentrate on the voices of the characters telling you who they are and how they feel about What they see and what's going on, and I'm nowhere in sight. So that's Elmore Leonard's final rule, that's rule number ten. Try to leave out the part that readers tend to skip. Such a simple rule, but boy oh boy, is it fucking true? Another way of saying this, if I was going to put this in my own words, but you know, with the same spirit, is this Don't bore your reader. How do you know if you're boring your reader? Well, that's a tricky one. One clue, however, is if you're bored writing it, then assume your reader's going to be bored reading it. Beyond that, it's hard to know for sure. You can't ever know for sure how your reader's going to respond to it because at the end of the day, you're not that reader. That reader's going to have their own experience, so you can't really know. But this is also this is why beta readers they can be useful, uh, and there, there's there's no hard and fast rules as as far as how to engage beta readers in your writing process. For me, I don't use a lot of beta readers. In fact, I I don't really I don't use more than one beta reader. Generally speaking, Chanel is my beta reader. She's the reader who she reads my books, and she's the one that. Let's you know, that essentially expresses her experience. So Chanel will let me know if something is not keeping her interest in one of my stories, or if something is frankly boring, or she'll express confusion as to why something is included at all. And for my end, if I need to take time to explain something to Chanel, then it usually doesn't belong in the story anyways, so I cut it out. Anyway, those are Elmore Leonard's Ten Rules of Writing, and as a final tally, just in case you weren't keeping track, of his Ten Rules of Writing, I agreed with eight of them, and I disagreed with two of them. However, of the two that I disagreed with, one of those was a very soft, nuanced disagreement. As I mentioned before, there's actually a book that you can find on Amazon called Elmore Leonard's Ten Rules of Writing. You can find it in paperback or hardcover on Amazon.com. And if you're gonna, if you're if you're gonna buy the book anyway, I'm not even advertising the book, but it it, it does exist. And if you're gonna buy it, then you may as well go to the official website of this podcast, MartinLestrapShow.com. Click on the shop page. Did I say clock? Click on it. Don't clock on it. Click on it. You're gonna see the Amazon banner. Click on that. You're gonna go there. Then go ahead and buy the book if you're gonna buy it at all. But it's it's got it's literally I I literally just read you the whole book. But it, it does have cool illustrations, so you know there is that. Um. Anyway, whatever. If you're gonna buy it, you know, go through the website because at the very least, you're gonna help. You're gonna help out the show, and we very much appreciate that. Um. Well, that's about it. I sure hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, as I <laughs> as I mentioned, um, a while ago, we, we're we're approaching two hours. We're not quite two hours, but we're really fucking close. And that's an awfully long time for uh, somebody to be sitting in front of a microphone talking by themselves, I suspect. Although, for what it's worth, I never felt like I was talking by myself. I always felt like I was in a conversation with you guys. However, one side of the conversation was, I, you know, whatever. I never felt like I was by myself. I could always feel you listening to me. So I guess that's partly what makes it easy for me to, to do this and sit here and talk to you guys. Um, Really quickly, if... If you're not already subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, you should definitely do that. The Marginless Trap Show Podcast Hour is available on iTunes. You can and should subscribe to it. It is free. And free is one of the one of the best things in the world when something is free. But not only when you not only is subscribing to the show free, it also just just makes your life easier because you don't have to remember to come back and listen to the show. If you subscribe to it just every week, the new episodes get dropped into your list, and there it is waiting for you. It's wonderful, it's convenient, and again, it's free. If you're not an iTunes listener, you can always catch the show on Stitcher Radio, which you can find at Stitcher.com, which is also free. You don't have to you don't need to subscribe, you don't need the Stitcher app, although there is a Stitcher app, which might make your life easier if you listen to stuff on Stitcher anyway. Um but the show's available there. Uh you can leave reviews on both iTunes and Stitcher. Which is great for the show. It's not only great for the self-esteem of everybody involved with the Martin the Podcast Hour, but they're also just really useful because they some I, I don't know the mechanics of it, but you know they go into the the the, the, the algorithms of iTunes uh, and Stitcher and reviews. Whether it's a starred review or you've taken the time to write a review, they you know they they raise the show up and they make them more visible to to potential readers who might otherwise not know that the show exists, and that would be really helpful to, to us here because we want to get as many people listening to this show as possible. So there's that. Anywho, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the March Lestrap the Strap Show podcast hour. I swear to God, when I sat down to record, I thought this will be about an hour or so, maybe even 45 minutes. I'm just going to sit down because I have a few things I want to talk about. And uh, almost two hours later, here we are. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed yourself Um, And I also hope you'll join me again next week, as uh, it's not going to be me by myself. Uh, I'm going to have a a wonderful conversation with another very cool author that I'm going to share with you. Who is it, you ask? Well, you're going to have to tune in next week to find out. So uh, until next time, I'll see you on the other side.